Welcome to Sticky Cues. I'm Aidy. And I'm Tom. We answer anonymous questions written on sticky notes from our real-life consent education classes. We'll talk about sex, relationships, consent, and help you to tackle those sticky questions from the young people in your life. G'day, Eddie. Hi, Tom. How you going? Pretty great. That's good. What have you been thinking about this week? I've been thinking about the symmetry in, like, you know how people say, like, if you take one side of someone's face and flip it to the other side, then they look weird, mm. and how asymmetry, therefore, is beautiful? I've kind of been thinking about that, and just, like, noticing trees and stuff as I go past being like, mm. oh, yeah, they're like kind of balanced, but also a bit off to the side, and that looks kind of nice. I guess you are functionally doubling the information from, like the visual information from an object if it's asymmetrical, which our brain probably likes more. It's more interesting to look at. There's more happening. Um, Now, I have a question. Would you like to answer a question? I would love to answer a question, please. Great. Edie, do your parents need consent to clip your toenails? Great question. And the very short answer is yes, they absolutely do. It does require an understanding of consent, I think. A lot of people think that consent is permission. And I guess in this context, you could think about it in terms of them needing your permission to clip your toenails. But that being really important because it is your body and it's quite a low stakes thing. Everybody needs their nails clipped. Everybody needs their hair cut. But it is your body. It belongs to you. So you need to understand why they're clipping your toenails and to be comfortable with that. And if you're not comfortable with that, to have your parents explain things and do things in a way that makes you feel okay about doing those bodily hygiene things that we all need to do. So that's the answer that I would give to a young person who's Mm -hmm. asked that. That's coming off the back of a class where we have talked a lot about consenting and what that means. So in our deep dive in a moment, that's where we're going to go. We're going to talk about what consenting is and what it looks and sounds like. Okay, so that was the short answer. Now we're deep diving into some of the bigger concepts. The first thing that comes to my mind with this question is... I can hear someone going, that's absurd. Your parents don't need to ask for consent to clip your toenails. They're your parents. Mm-hmm. But can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that's that's the misunderstanding mm. of consent that I'm talking about. People think it's permission and everyone is entitled to be consenting all of the time. Mm. That We're born with that human right. And I think it might be really helpful for us to explain what we mean when we talk about consent mm. because the fundamental differences between permission and consent are the FRIES acronym that we use in school. So it's freely given, it's reversible, it's informed, it's enthusiastic, and it's sober. So we often talk about consent in the context of sex, for which is really, really important. But 
we are consenting or not consenting from the moment that we're born and it's a behavior and language that is role modeled for us, hopefully, Mm. starting with really low stakes things like clipping your toenails and permission is transactional. It's not necessarily informed. The way I explain it to young people often is that permission is to do with stuff and things like lending a notebook or whatever and consent is to do with your body and your personal space and your own emotional health. That's a really good uh, distinction, I feel. Thanks. It, it adds that that layer of value and importance. Like, yeah, your notebooks, your pens, et cetera, that's fine. But when it comes to your body and your personal space, we're now mm-hmm. talking about something on a different level. Yeah. So we use a different word. And there's a lot of nuance. And I think consent is actually more complicated for kids, minors, than it is for adults. But I think kids understand it easier Mm. and simpler and adults find it more complex. Yeah, that is such a paradox and it is so real. Like you see that in the classroom. Yeah. 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 So kids, you tell them that consent means that it's an agreement where everybody has choice and you are entitled to decide what happens with your body. And they're like, okay, yeah, cool. I get that. Mm. 100%. But then because it's not really role modeled and certainly for the Western culture that we grew up in, that isn't shown to us. So it doesn't feel true. And by the time you're an adult, you're like, oh yeah, but it's kind of normal to... To not be asked consent, to not consider that I've not been asked to... yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. If whether or not I'm consenting. Yeah, all of that stuff. And I feel like that's always what I come back to with these questions or when somebody puts up the opposition, this is absurd. Why would you ask consent in mm. this situation? And it's like, well, when you do it with the low stakes, as you've said, it creates a pattern of expectation for the kid. Yeah. Like I, do you remember nice. that? Um, this might be dating the episode already, but that news clip of the lady from the US talking about giving or asking for consent from the oh, kid to as change the nappy. nappy. Yeah, I remember that. In the that. community <laughs> that I was in at the time, massive uproar yeah. around how silly that was. Mm-hmm. But now it's like, well, if that kid has grown up with that being a normal part of their experience, that when it comes to their body and their personal space, somebody cares enough to ask, you're not going to be asking for consent around nappies for too long. It's probably not going to be this big thing that they either remember or that affects them. What will matter is that they know the value of their body and personal space and that it is worth asking around. Yeah, and it's it's that role modelling behaviour. And I think that also demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of what consent is Mm. because people think consent means I have to give them a choice and I have to respect their no. But when it comes to things like clipping toenails, cutting hair, changing nappies, Mm. those things need to happen. And so the consenting part of it is the child understanding why those things are happening and that Mm. it's for their benefit. And this is the nuance of consent as well. Yes, the enthusiasm, the E is in there and That is the best way that we know that someone is consenting, which is great. But being fully informed about things, agreeing in the moment that things are happening for a certain outcome, for a consequence of health, for example. The example I like to give for adults is tattoos. I have large tattoos and no, I did not want to sit through eight hours of pain to get that artwork on my body, but I do want that artwork on my body. So yes, I will agree and participate Mm. and be present for eight hours of having my skin drilled. Yeah, yeah. So I think the mistake that we make a lot of time with children and the same with children in my life as well, I've done it loads of times, is that we tend to offer choice where there isn't any rather than being clear with the boundaries and informing them and then not offering choice Mm. where there is. So a great example for me is 
being with a two-year-old and saying to them, do you want to get in the car? It's time to go now. We have to go. They don't have a choice about getting in the car. We have to go. I said it in the same sentence. Mm. So then if they say no, that's on me. I've now got to hang around for another half hour or 10 minutes or whatever because I need to show them that where they're given a choice, it will be respected. And this may be diverting off the pathway of what we're trying to do, but I feel that a lot of what people's resistance is probably about is the idea of giving up power. If I am asking Mm. for consent, it feels like inherently I'm saying, all right, I would like to be in control. I need to click this kid's toenails. That needs to happen. But to be a good person, I now have to give up the power in this dynamic mm-hmm. before doing this. And maybe they don't want to. And now I'm kind of, my hands are tied. Yeah, because we I, feel out of control and we let go of our yeah. personal power. I think what I'm hearing for what you were saying is that, that the power dynamic inherent in, say, like a parent-caregiver relationship can still coexist with role modeling consent genuinely. Yeah. You can be like, look, this needs to happen. I need to clip your toenails. Mm. However, I'm letting you know that it's happening. Mm-hmm. If this is hurting or whatever, you can tell me and we will change it up. Mm-hmm. If there is a way that this can move forwards where your choice in this still matters. This child, I assume, is primary school aged. We It came out of a primary school classroom. My guess is probably about nine or ten years old. Um, And yeah, you don't need to say all of that stuff to them, but Mm. we need to clip your toenails. We've got scissors, we've got clippers. Look, I'll do it to myself. Doesn't hurt. All of that kind of stuff. That's what the consenting is. Mm. And as you will know from working with me, I very often talk about consenting because it reminds me that it's a verb, not a noun. And that is another thing. The way that we talk about consent misleads us because we say things like, I got consent, I have consent, Mm. I gave consent which makes it sound transactional. Like an object. Yeah, like an object that you pass to someone. You go, Mm. there you go, you're done. I'm also hearing people saying, well, how do you ask a pre-vocal child that they're consenting? Mm. Uh, So I want to address that as well. I want to talk about how you show consenting behaviors. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Changing nappies or, I mean, yeah, the baby that I had in my life for a while when they were a baby, they're still in my life. It sounded like they <laughs> left. They didn't. <laughs> they just grew up and are no Contracted longer a baby. baby was out here. <laughs> They've got other places to be. The, they would be on the sofa and distressed, and I thought maybe they wanted me to pick them up, so I would go and stand near them and reach my arms out. And babies will reach their arms out to you if they want to be picked mm. up. And it's really clear. They'll roll away, they'll pull their arms in if they don't want that. And so there are ways that we can communicate with babies and children. And even changing nappies, like talking through, yeah, kids might get distressed at that process that needs to happen. And we can do our best to make a warm room or do things quickly or whatever. But I think, um, and I'm sort of thinking back to how my parents raised me, just reflecting on what you were saying, is that my, I re- have vivid memories of my mom, especially being just very clear about what she was doing. And mm. so not having that hesitancy of like, oh, can I take this off? Oh, can I do yeah. that? But like, this needs to happen. I'm going to do this. Off it comes. There you go. Clean, done, on. Mm. And her surety and certainty. And, and then I guess afterwards, like giving me space, comforting me, doing whatever it was that I needed. I'm not thinking of specific examples, but that's the feeling that I have when I think mm. back to being small. 
So I think that's how we show that is like those those clear boundaries and debriefing I think is really important mm. for young people as well when they are really upset and you just need them to put their flipping shoes on and get in the car and you have to just wrench their feet into shoes, talking to them about it once they're re-regulated, once they're calm, being like, I'm sorry I had to put your shoes on, but this was the Mm. circumstance. I don't want that to happen. You know, can we talk about this in the future? However it is that you have those conversations with your child that means that they understand why that discomfort happened and that hopefully reinforces that you're a safe person because unsafe people won't do that. They'll just constantly cross barriers and boundaries yeah. and normalize yep. behaviors that violate someone's personal space. My brain is like running off in three, I think I counted different strands here. Um, I really See which one you can catch. Well, um, yeah, no, they're all gone. I <laughs> love that example of talking about it afterwards. So after the moment of dysregulation where you've had to, um, you know, shove the gumboot on their foot because you're heading home from the park kind That's of That's wellies for international listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Gumboots. Um, Galoshes. I love it as a process to talk about it after because it helps us to connect with what our body went through when we were dysregulated and connect our mm. calm, present brain back to a point where often we're just dysregulated, mm. we're angry, we're upset, we're sad, we're mm-hmm. switching off. And normalising that if you feel like that, you should talk to someone about it. Yeah. And that. It can happen and then you can deal with it afterwards. Yep. It It's not done. We don't talk about it. Yeah. Which wonderfully segues into the second thing I was thinking about. Nice. Um, one of the other reasons why I'm passionate about this idea of practicing consenting with kids in like these low state things is that it feels like an active counter to shame around the body. Yes. Because mm. I've, I know from my own experience, the things I'm ashamed about, I am quiet about. Or if I'm mm-hmm. quiet about something mm-hmm. and I don't talk about it, I'm inferring that there is shame here. Yep. So if consent. The assumption. Yeah, exactly. Mm. 100%. And if no one is talking about what is happening to my body or what is happening while in my personal space. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's awkward. We're all feeling a bit awkward mm-hmm. and a bit like uncomfortable with this. We don't talk about it. Shame. It's a silent topic. Yeah. So being able to step in and go, hey, I'm going to cut your toenails. This might feel a bit weird. might feel a bit scary. Um, I can show you on me first, but we're going to do this. You tell me if this hurts and we'll switch it up. All of a sudden there's conversation allowed about my yep. body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just think that's really powerful. I agree. Yeah. I don't think that's something that I really had either as a kid. No, it really that I had to sit with that one for a few seconds. because, like, oh, that one goes deep. I have a question for you. Do you have any memories of, I guess, this low stakes consent stuff when you were a kid? Not at all. Not at all. And <laughs> like um, in either direction, I guess. As in me. Yeah. Like, do you have a memory of, um, someone creating or respecting a boundary for you as a kid in a low stakes environment or vice versa, having a feeling of like, oh, I don't matter in this moment because Mm. I don't want this to happen. And it is anyway. Um, not, I don't have memories of me as a kid observing or recognizing that that was being role modeled to me. It might have happened and I just don't remember it, but it didn't happen enough for me to be like, oh yeah, no, my parents clearly cared about it. Mm. And it was like a kind of a foundational part. On the other side, I've got a lot of nieces and nephews, did a lot of babysitting. Um, And I remember once we were in the town where I grew up, going down a big slide, and I was going first, and everyone was piling in behind because it was a fairly big slide. Mm -hmm. And 
I was having to hold myself halfway down this slide against the wall so that everyone could stack up on it. And the last kid didn't want to get on. For some reason, they kind of freaked out. And I just remember going, my arms are hurting here. I can either like use my voice to kind of like scare them into get like, hurry up, get on. We're like, we're all going down. Or I have to acknowledge that they don't want to. And in this precarious position, I need to try and respect this kid's fear. Wow, you saw the choice. Oh, it was night and day. Um, and what did you do? Unfortunately, I you ended up. Get, I, get, I got angry at them, <laughs> oh, no. and they that of course that drew drove them further into their little corner. Of yeah, fear. of course. We went down the slide, came around. I ended up apologising to them. We had a little teary moment and, and hugged, oh, which was really lovely. Good job. But I just remember Tom. at the time being like, I. I want a thing to happen and your fear and your ability to choose whether yep. or not you get on board is is getting in the way and that annoys me. Yeah. Um, so I don't – I feel like that's probably an experience that people might be able to relate to. Mm. And so when it comes to this idea of do I need to ask my kid for consent to clip their toenails, they think I've got stuff to do, I've got other kind of obligations and stresses on my mind to give time and energy to this feels absurd. Mm. Um but then the difference is a childhood where you grow up going, oh, you know, my parents role modelled it. They did what they had to do. Mm. They didn't do it perfectly, obviously. Mm. Um, but they cared enough about me knowing what it meant to be able to be consenting that they role modelled it in mm. things like clipping my toenails. And I think that's the value that I would try to pull people back to is it may seem absurd in a one, one-off isolated example, mm. but you layer that over a childhood and yeah. all of a sudden your kid knows what to listen for. Yeah, it yeah. reinforces the message and they can look out for red flags then because, yeah. yeah, not everyone's going to have safe adults growing up. And the moment an experience starts to cross a boundary of that consent that mm. they are used to, mm. the mind is going, hang on, things are happening here that I'm not comfortable with because mm. this really obvious and great example has been set growing up where when something involves my body or my personal space and I don't feel comfy with it or I don't Mm. like it, I'm allowed to talk about it. I'm allowed to not like it and not just go ahead with it. That Mm. example has been set for me. Yeah, nice. I did a lot of gymnastics as a child and that was where the discussion around bodies happened. I never had any conversations outside of my body being a functional tool for a, a sporting outcome. And a lot of those messages, unfortunately, was it's not flexible enough, it's not strong enough, it's not fast enough, it's too slow, it's too whatever. And yeah, any sort of like pubescent stuff that went on as I grew up was an inconvenience Mm. and was like, I want a stronger word than inconvenience. Like it was a real pain. I used to get bleeding noses all the time Mm. or if I sprained my ankle, like growing boobs and needing Mm. to figure out how to wear a bra under a leotard, all of that was just a massive pain that was strongly inconvenient. Like stumbling blocks almost. Like you're just trying to move forward. Yeah, and I'm already not fast enough, not Mm. this, not that, and now these other things. So, yeah, growing up and internalising a lot of messages about how my body is an inconvenience and is something to be moulded and dominated and, Yeah. yeah, So undoing all of that takes a long time. And I think what if I had had a childhood that was more full of, oh, isn't that interesting that our bodies do that? Or like, Mm. that's so great that you're able to do those things. And rather than focusing on the, the negative stuff and empowering me to have choice around that. 
that it's funny. I, I got a real sense of what empowering probably feels like to become empowered in your body, having internalized all these like not good enough messages, mm. the physical or the felt experience of going, maybe it is good enough. Maybe it's not an inconvenience mm. would be wildly unfamiliar, I imagine. To like push into that territory, which I think is everybody's experience yeah. with consent. Yeah, yeah. 100%. I think we get to con- we get to being sexually interested in other people. And we're like, oh, we're supposed to think about consent now. Mm. Okay, what's that? <laughs> yeah. Ask permission. Great. Yeah. Where's, um, my, where's my notes? You, Let me pull those do out. Do you want to have sex? Hello, my <laughs> name's Tom. I'd like to do this. Sign here. Yeah, and you also have no idea what sex is, but that's another episode. So we'll park that one. To wrap up. I feel like it might be useful to frame this conversation in terms of a long-term investment, if you will, by having consenting conversations with your younger people at younger ages, you are setting them up for a life of knowing what it looks like, knowing what safe people look like, how to do it when it doesn't work, how it feels. You are investing in their long-term joy, well-being, experience, connection, that's why you do it. it. Might sound absurd. In an isolated example, you are setting them up in a way that I think a lot of us could relate to wishing we had. So, question I would now put to you, uh, and we've kind of touched on it, but in terms of a green flag, an amber flag, red flag, what would you tag this as, and why? Definitely green. No, no hesitation at all. Um, this is such a logical thought process yeah. for a nine or 10 yeah. year old who's just been told consent is an agreement where everyone has choice and you are entitled to that choice mm. for anything to do with your body. That makes perfect sense that you would be like, well, what happens with my body? My toenails get clipped. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And here we go. Yeah, exactly. Super normal question. You get this 10 times a class. Green. Green flag. Green all over. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please pass it on. Consent education is best when it's open and often. This podcast can be a great jumping off point. It really helps if you give us a rating, leave a review and subscribe. To see more questions that we've answered, you can follow us on Instagram at sticky underscore QS. Sticky Cues is hosted and produced by Tom Duff and Aidy Delaney. Further support from the Tasmanian Sexual Assault Support Service Editing, sound design and original composition by Gareth Dawson. Graphic design by Fatago.